You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So I'll open the Bible to our scripture readings for this morning. We begin in the Old Testament, Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping... He took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh." The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's also go now to the Song of Songs, chapter 1. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. How right they are to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I have neglected. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I liken you, my darling, to a mare, harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh, Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My lover is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of En Gedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars. Our rafters are firs. And finally, we turn also to the New Testament, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This morning's sermon is on the truth of God's word as it's been summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 41 of the Hutterberg Catechism. What does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, last weekend I was walking through the Safeway in Smithers and this bold headline caught my attention. Brad promises Angelina's kids. I will be your real dad forever. And it struck me, why does something like this get splashed across the headlines of supermarket tabloids? Surely some of the reason has to do with the breakdown of families. Just the idea of somebody being a real dad forever, it strikes many people today as being an unrealistic promise. We read the headline... And we're inclined to say, well, yeah, sure. Let's see if Brad and Angelina are even together in six months. So the headline gets our attention and sparks our cynicism, and not just because of the breakdown of families, but more particularly because of the breakdown of marriage. And you know the statistics about marriage in Canada, I'm sure. The latest news is that divorce rates are actually down but so are the numbers of people getting married. And for those who do get married, the statistics are still pretty grim. Many couples don't last beyond four or five years. And we didn't need the introduction of so-called homosexual marriage to endanger the institution. Because you know, the godless decadence of our culture has put marriage at risk for many years already. Well, the seventh commandment was given by God to protect the good and beautiful institution of marriage. The commandment forbids the committing of adultery, breaking the bonds of marriage by creating intimacy with others outside the marriage relationship. 
And the Catechism focuses on unchastity as part of this. It's clear from Scripture that believers have to maintain sexual purity inside and outside of marriage. We could say that this forms the the negative side of the commandment. Do not compromise your sexual purity by engaging in intimacy outside of the marriage relationship. Now, the positive side is what we want to mostly look at this morning. The positive side is that, like Scripture says in Hebrews 13.4, marriage is to be held in honor by believers. God gave marriage to us. And He did that so that we, by the power of the Spirit, could live faithfully, not only in relationship with one another, but also in relationship with Him. And so I preached to you this morning with this theme, marriage, God's blueprint for man and woman, to live in intimate relationship. And we see this blueprint, first of all, grounded in creation, second, vandalized in the fall, and then finally, restored and fulfilled in Christ. So first of all, this blueprint's grounded in creation. A blueprint, of course, is a paper or a set of papers that's meant to guide the building of something. It's a detailed plan, a design. Well, marriage is God's detailed plan for men and women to live together in the most intimate way imaginable. And this plan was first laid out at the beginning of all things. In Genesis 2, we read a more detailed account of creation, including the specifics of how and why God created woman. You don't read all that in in Genesis 1. With almost everything that God created, God could stand back and he could say, This is very good. But there was a a gap. In Genesis 2.18, God said that it was not good. Not good for the man to be alone. God, therefore, decided to create a helper fit for Adam. But notice that God doesn't do this right away. No, before creating woman, he first creates in Adam a sense of need. The animals parade in front of Adam and he names them as he sees fit. But you can be sure that as he was doing this, he also noticed that there were two of every kind. Now, some of them looked the same. I mean, have you ever tried to tell the difference between a a male and female squirrel without looking really closely? But with other animals, it would be clear that there was male and there was female. You think, for instance, of bighorn sheep. The the male and the female, they're, they're easily distinguished. So God bringing the animals to Adam served two purposes. First, for Adam to name them and so to exercise dominion over them. But also for Adam, personally, to feel the need for a helper. Someone to compliment him somewhat the same way that the bighorn sheep you compliments the ram, but, of course, in, in a much, much deeper way. Well, Genesis 2.20 tells us that Adam felt the need. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. As a result, God created woman out of the man, out of one of the ribs of the man. God brought Eve to Adam, and he rejoiced. And what we have here is the first wedding ceremony. And then verse 24 gives us a a kind of a lens which, which brings the whole picture into focus. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. 
In other words, the unity expressed in marriage originates with God's good creation. And this idea of one flesh, that captures the intimacy intended for this relationship. And that's not just a a reference to the physical or sexual aspect of marriage. There's also a spiritual unity between man and woman. In every way, Adam and Eve were tied together in a natural, in a beautiful unity. Nothing stood in the way of their experiencing deep and meaningful intimacy between themselves and then also as a couple with their Creator. We can see in all this the emphatic scriptural truth, it's repeated several times throughout Scripture, that marriage is not a human invention. It's not a sociocultural convention. God took the first man and the first woman. God put them together as husband and wife. One man, one woman, together for as long as they both shall live. That was the plan. That was the blueprint for marriage. And in case anyone might miss that truth, the Lord Jesus reaffirmed it in Matthew 19. Christ reminds the Pharisees that it was God who put the man and woman together in close-knit unity. Matthew 19, 6, So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Christ spoke these words in answer to a question about divorce. And with his answer, he showed that marriage is good. He showed that marriage is natural. It's grounded in creation. It's part of God's created plan for humanity. But divorce is unnatural. Divorce belongs to a fallen world. Divorce only exists as a necessary evil. In his teaching, the Lord Jesus wanted to be clear that marriage should be held in very high esteem by his followers. And we can also see this high view of marriage in what we read from the Song of Songs. This reading, it it captures somewhat of the, the excitement of the intimate relationship that God intends men and women to be in with one another. This is the kind of relationship where you're totally caught up with the other person. It's a relationship that's encapsulated and fulfilled by marriage. This is where husband and wife are most fully satisfied and enraptured with one another. Song of Songs shows us the, I guess you could say, the godly giddiness and and delight that a married couple should experience. A man and a woman in a very close, intimate relationship. A picture of two people living as intimate allies and so also living in God's plan. That's the picture. But this picture is fragile. It can easily be broken. It can easily be vandalized. Let's consider how in our second point this morning. The blueprint of marriage vandalized in the fall. I trust that the fall into sin is, is fairly familiar to us. But how often do we consider what specifically happened to marriage in, in the fall? Prior to the fall, there was intimacy and there, there was unity. Adam and Eve trusted one another. But after the fall, intimacy and unity were broken by blame. Genesis 3.12, the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Adam didn't take sole responsibility for what happened. Instead, he 
He pointed the finger. He blamed Eve. And even more remarkably, he blamed God. You put this woman here with me. It's your fault too. Blame shifting and a refusal to take responsibility for wrongs have afflicted marriages ever since. God's detailed plan for intimacy and unity between husband and wife was vandalized by Adam and Eve. And through the ages, the vandalism has continued endlessly. And today, fallen people continue to vandalize God's blueprint for marriage. Let's just mention a few different ways in which that can and does happen. We can start off quite generally by looking at what the Catechism says in Lord's Day 41. It mentions unchastity outside of marriage. Now again, unchastity refers to sexual impurity. The Catechism explains the Seventh Commandment to forbid all sexually impure acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may lead us or entice us to sexual impurity. And when we talk about outside of marriage, I expect that we're clear that sex outside of marriage is one way in which God's blueprint gets vandalized. But let's be explicit and blunt for a minute. There's this thing among young people in our society. It's called hooking up. Very casual sexual behavior, often without any affection, without any commitment. Let's be clear that hooking up doesn't fit with the Seventh Commandment. It's against the Seventh Commandment. But so is regular sex out of marriage, if you want to call it that. Even if you're committed to one another in in some vague way, or even if you're committed to, to getting married later at some point, it doesn't fit with the Seventh Commandment. It goes against the Seventh Commandment. The Catechism also mentions unchastity or sexual impurity inside the marriage relationship. This can happen when a, when a spouse becomes focused on selfish wants. More seriously, it can happen when a spouse becomes abusive sexually. And of course, unchastity can also take place through outright adultery, breaking the intimacy and unity of the relationship by seeking affection in the arms of another. And again, let's be clear that this does not have to be a physical act. You know, chat rooms and and other such things on the internet, they can lead to emotional adultery, where a spouse becomes emotionally attached to to somebody else through chatting and, and so on. And oftentimes that kind of emotional adultery does lead to physical adultery at some point. Regardless, the damage is done. God's blueprint for marriage gets vandalized when we seek any kind of intimacy and unity with someone other than our spouse. Of course, there's also the matter of so-called homosexual marriage. We don't have to go very far into this. We know that God made Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve. God's plan is for one man and one woman to live together for as long as they both shall live. And of course... There may be believers who struggle with homosexual feelings. But that struggle is no longer there when you commit yourself to some kind of covenant with another. And we have to be clear that the whole notion of homosexual relationships and also marriage is a form of vandalism on God's plan for marriage. Finally, we should be clear about another practice common in the world. 
It's the whole thing of acting as if you're married when you're really not. We're talking about common law marriages, but also so-called cohabitation or, or shacking up. Let's be clear about this. In the light of God's law, it is not acceptable for unmarried couples to live together as if they are married. Period. The general rule is that you live separately before making your marriage vows, and only after you're married do you share the same bed and so on. Remember, the seventh commandment speaks about God forbidding whatever may entice us to unchastity, to sexual impurity. Living together before marriage is, generally speaking, an enticement to sexual impurity. And so also this practice vandalizes God's blueprint for marriage. All these acts of vandalism that I mentioned and and many more that I didn't mention have consequences. It's always good to be reminded of Proverbs 13, 15. The way of the unfaithful is hard. When you vandalize God's blueprint for marriage, it can be fun for a while. Sure. But eventually the chickens come home to roost. You think of the terrible damage that porn does to marriages, breaking the trust and intimacy between a husband and wife. Or think of what happens when couples engage in sexual intimacy before they're married. Especially for women, this can have a very negative impact on your married life. When couples have had premarital intimacy, they usually later experience a lack of romance, mutual blame, distrust, guilt, resentment, and the list goes on and on. Prevention is the best cure. And we have a number of engaged couples in our congregation. We also have those who are in serious relationships that may later on lead to engagement and and marriage. And to you, brothers and sisters, I, I want to say it to you as clearly as possible. If you want to have a healthy marriage later on, now is the time to say no to all forms of sexual intimacy. And that's all forms, not just the one form that might lead to pregnancy. Ultimately, this is about God's glory in your life. Because that's the highest, that's the most important consequence. How is God being glorified when you disregard and even vandalize His blueprint for your life? Now, for those who have sinned in these ways, there's healing and there's forgiveness in Christ. On the liturgy sheet, I mentioned one book that might be helpful for those who have had premarital intimacy. This book, by someone who's been there, points us to Christ. Points us to Christ as the one who gives healing and hope. And at this point in the sermon, let's see how he fulfills and restores the blueprint of marriage. Well, we already heard something of Christ's teaching on marriage and divorce. How he reaffirmed marriage as something good and beautiful and how divorce is a necessary evil in a broken world. When the Lord Jesus lived on this earth, He restored a proper view of marriage. After all, the Pharisees, of all people, had cheapened it through easy divorce. It's well known that in those days, a Jewish man could divorce his wife for the most frivolous reasons. All a woman had to do was burn her husband's supper and she could become the ex. 
But Christ taught that divorce is only warranted in cases where unity and intimacy are irreparably broken. And guess what? Burning supper does not qualify. But more than this, Christ also showed the depth of the seventh commandment and how this commandment guards the closest relationship between human beings. Just think of what he said in in Matthew 5 about looking at another person lustfully. This also breaks the unity and intimacy of marriage. Adultery is not just about physical acts. It's about what lives in your heart. Christ showed that God's blueprint for marriage is not just about external actions, about keeping your physical hands off of others. Most importantly, it's about what lives in your heart. Adultery, physical physical act of adultery, inevitably begins with the heart. When we open ourselves up to others, when we glance a bit too long, when we flirt with those we're not married to, we're sending subtle signals that we're actually on the hunt for a fling. We reveal what's living in our hearts with our words and actions, whether they're subtle or not. You know, the best practical advice to avoid this is to always talk about your spouse with others in a positive way. When others see that you're satisfied and you're happy with your spouse, you rejoice in them, that puts a wall around you that protects you from adulterous relationships. You know, for guys, when when a woman starts getting a little bit too close for comfort, if you start praising your wife and your kids, that's the sure way to put the kibosh on any further developments. Women can keep guys at bay by always making clear that their number one best friend is their husband. Then we show to others that an affair is the furthest thing from our hearts. That in our hearts we want to live within the framework that God has given. The framework which Christ taught us so clearly in His ministry on earth. He taught a restored view of marriage. Marriage is also restored by Christ when we consider that it's reflective of deeper spiritual realities. In our reading from Ephesians 5, it's clear that there's a connection between Christ and the church and our relationships as husbands and wives. The heavenly marriage of Christ is a model of how we should relate to one another in our marriages. Just as Christ is faithful to His bride in the same way, spouses ought to be faithful to one another. And that means in every way. Christ is only intimate with His bride. He only has eyes for her, only cares about her. The church ought to feel the same way about her husband. In our marriages, our commitment to one another has to be Christ-like. You see, Christ gave Himself entirely for the church. And that forms our pattern for loving marriages. The kind of love we see in Christ is entirely self-sacrificial. Love is about giving, not taking, not getting, what I can get out of it, having my needs met. Now, I heard a song the other day, and one of the lines in the song was, the more we take, the less we become. The more we take, the less we become. And I thought, even though it's written by an unbeliever, that has an air of truth to it. And if we turn it around to a positive statement, and if we look at Christ as our model for love, isn't it true that the more we give, the more we become like Christ? 
The more we give, the more we become like Christ. And the seventh commandment relates directly to this because it forbids selfishness. It forbids selfish abuses of the sexual aspects of our being, those aspects which are to be saved for sharing, for giving with a spouse. And in this way we see that the seventh commandment is restored and fulfilled in Christ because we see Him and we see the One who gave Himself entirely for the bride He loves. And Christ not only restores the blueprint for marriage, He also fulfills it. Christ's relationship with the church fills up to the full what a perfect marriage should look like. And of course, this is only possible on the human side through the power of the Holy Spirit working in the church, through the power of the Spirit sanctifying the church. And through this work, through this relationship, we can look ahead to eternity. And because the time will come when there will be no more marriage. Marriage between men and women is only for this age. In the age to come, the only marriage will be between Christ and His people. In the new world, we will be entirely focused on Christ, living in intimate relationship with Him forever, being completely and utterly satisfied and fulfilled in every way with our Savior. And as we reflect on this aspect of marriage, we can see that the fulfillment of the blueprint also speaks to those of us who are not called to the married state. When God's will for us is that we're single, if only for the time being or maybe even permanently, our calling is to focus entirely on Christ. Well, sure, we may desire marriage on earth. Maybe we don't. But ultimately, all of us have to realize that marriage is pointing us to relationship with Christ. All of us. And when, when we have a, an intimate relationship with Christ without being married, we, we can still have that kind of relationship. And, and in some ways, it might even be easier to have that kind of relationship, as Paul said. As singles, we have to find our satisfaction, our meaningfulness, with whom it will all ultimately be fulfilled in the age to come, with Christ. Now, it's significant that the catechism's first question in this Lord's Day is about what the seventh commandment teaches us, not about what God requires, like with the other commandments. You see, the seventh commandment teaches us about how God views our sexuality and how believers will live within His blueprint, His design for our lives. And in this way, the seventh commandment also teaches us about the beauty and the depth of marriage. This institution is so important that God gave one of the Ten Commandments to protect it. This institution is such an important part of God's will for us that He gives His Son to teach us more fully about its depth and its true significance. And because of all that, we're motivated to thankfully and joyfully live according to this blueprint. And in this way, following this blueprint, we experience true intimacy not only among ourselves as husbands and wives, but also ultimately for all of us, married or not, we experience genuine intimacy with our God. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web 
at www.langleycanrc.org.